Uh, so a few weeks ago, I made a decision um, to purchase something that I haven't had in about 15 or 16 years, and that is a video game system. And uh, I that came to this conclusion because I'm one of those people that always has to be doing something so I don't relax very well. Even like watching a show on Netflix or something like that, I can watch one, maybe two, but this whole idea of binging something just sounds terrible to me. And so what happens is I often find myself reading or have to do something like I have a hard time relaxing. So I was like, I'm going to buy a video game system and I'm just going to chill out because I need to do that sometimes. And uh, about a week after I made this decision, they announced the new Xbox and the PlayStation that were coming out. And I was a kid who played an Xbox. And so I thought, well, I'll just buy a new Xbox. And so uh, the pre-order was going to come in a few weeks. And again, I'm very naive on the gaming world of how this works. I'm like, I'm going to pre-order one. It's going to come November 10th and it's going to be great. Uh, and so I go and I only have one web browser open and I just try to buy it from Microsoft and I wasn't trying to do it from all these retailers. And so some of you guys know what happen. I didn't get one. And so I was like, well, this kind of stinks because I've already waited a few weeks and I now have to wait until November 10th to try to pre-order it again. And so the 10th came and it's the day that it came out. And so this time I learned my lesson. I had three different web browsers open uh, to three different sites. And I was, I had my alarm set on my phone. I'm like, this is it. I'm going to get it. And so uh, 12 o'clock comes on November 10th and I didn't get it. And I was like, well, this is annoying, and so I have to wait longer. And so the, the past couple of weeks, the Walmart and various uh, retailers and locations have said, hey, we're going to have some more to be sold at this particular time. And so about, I'm about 0 for 6 at this point, logging on, trying to get it. I was like, this is awful. And I have some friends that are like, have old Xboxes and like, hey, you want to buy my old one? I'm like, no, I've waited this long. I'm going to buy a new one. Um, fortunately for me, last week, a friend called me and said, Dylan, I have some good news for you. I was on Microsoft's website when they happened to come up, and I bought you one. Uh, and so I'm really excited. The only bad thing is it doesn't ship till January. And so I'm still not sure this is actually going to happen, but apparently in January, I will have an Xbox. Now, why do I tell you that story? I know you could care less or couldn't care less about my gaming woes, but here's what's happening, right? In this story, I knew, I think at least at some point, I'm going to get an Xbox, but the process of trying to get one has been pretty annoying. It hasn't worked out the way that I wanted to, and so I tried again, and I tried again, and it still hasn't happened, and, and I share that as we enter into this Advent or this Christmas season, I think sometimes we can think of, of, of why Jesus came and when he came and the manner in which he came, it's probably just God was annoyed with us and he messed up a lot of times. And, and so eventually he's going to send him aside to kind of get us straight because he was like, you guys are just, what, what, are you, what are you doing? You guys need some help. And so it's like this long process, this really kind of unthought out process of finally, I'm going to send Jesus because you guys are all sorts of messed up. Uh, and my hope this morning is we're going to see that, that that is actually the exact opposite of what Christ did. And so today, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in this series called The Prophets Foretold, uh, where we're going to be looking at a different Old Testament prophet, prophecy each week in December and seeing how Jesus and the Messiah coming fulfilled that prophecy. Today, we're going to be looking at the time in which Jesus uh, came. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 is where we will begin. Uh, the book of Genesis, particularly the first couple of chapters, um, are, is the creation story of how God created everything. We're not going to get into the particulars of what all that looked like this morning. Uh, but what we see happening in the beginning of Genesis is you have Adam and Eve, who just like us, choose to go their own way. And because of our sin and our desires and our selfishness, uh, God has to provide a solution for us to experience 
experience the grace and mercy of God because we can't attain it on our own. And so in the beginning of Genesis, uh, you have an Adam and Eve who are given uh, reign over everything in the garden where God has placed them except for one tree that he asked them not to eat from. Uh, we see a serpent in the story come, uh, tempt them and said, did God really say? And uh, eventually Adam and Eve take from uh, the fruit. Uh, they've sinned and they've abandoned God and they've gone their own way. And then here's what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. It says, so the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head. This is the offspring of the woman and you will strike his heel. And so what we have in the beginning books or the beginning chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter three, particularly in verse 15, we have what is often referred to as the proto-evangelium. Uh, proto meaning first, evangelium meaning good news. In other words, this is the, in the very beginning, in the beginning of scripture, we have this good news that God was going to do something for us that we clearly could not do for ourselves. And what we see happening throughout all of human history since then is that humanity, which is her offspring, the offspring of the woman, will and still does continue to struggle in some general sense uh, with evil, with suffering, with making our own decisions. But we see from the very beginning, there is a hope that somehow this evil will one day be overcome. The question then is by who and how will this offspring, how will this person do it? By who and how will it actually happen? Now, to be fair to the original audiences that would read this book for generations and this story, um, they don't have an answer to this question, right? They don't know who this will be. Uh, they don't know how it will be accomplished, and they certainly do not know when. But what we see as you continue to read Genesis and the entire Old Testament is that Genesis continues uh, with the line of Seth and eventually gives us people like Abraham or Moses, who so were in the series in Exodus that we've been in the last couple of months, or John. Joshua. You have various leaders and figures in Israelite history. And every time as readers of the story, we're supposed to ask this question. Is this one, is this person the one? Is this person the one that's going to be completely faithful and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves? And so we see throughout the Old Testament that you have various leaders. Some of them are really faithful, others not so much, but even the ones that were really faithful like Moses still ultimately fail. They still have times in their life where they are not faithful and that therefore they cannot do for us uh, what this Messiah figure is supposed to do. The question is, who is it going to be? And so what you have as you read scripture is you have this anticipation of somehow this is going to be set right, but we're not sure when it's going to happen. And so there's this tension. It kind of reminds me is, uh, years ago, uh, as I was graduating with my master's degree, I, was in, I got an undergrad degree in religion and a master's degree in religion. And Christina and I uh, were at this point we're living in Wilmington uh, and we had helped plant this church in Wilmington. And so I had this like part-time paid internship, but it was time to get like a real full-time job. Uh, the church was a, it was a smaller church and so they couldn't uh, hire me full-time. And so I started looking for jobs everywhere and I couldn't get one. And that's, I wasn't like picky, like I, everything, every place you could get, imagine I was applying and I never got a job. It was no, no, no. It is extremely discouraging. Now, I think part of the reason was, again, my undergrad degree was in religion. Uh, my master's degree was in religion. And my most relevant church experience or work experience was working at a church. And so I think people read that and be like, do you actually know how to do anything? 
Like, do you just like read the Bible? Do you actually have any skills? I think that's what they were wondering. Uh, And of course, I'm in ministry now, so I guess the answer to that is no, I don't have any other skills, right? But here's the thing. I was so frustrated. And I I even remember Christina and I were a little late on the office train, on the show The Office. And so we were watching The Office at this particular moment in time on Netflix. And I remember thinking, I would even work there. Like, I don't even care. Just give me a job. And so it was this time where, like, I knew eventually it was going to happen, but when? Like, when was it going to happen? And so there was a tension and there was a struggle. And that's what we see throughout Scripture, which leads us to Galatians chapter 3. And so if you'll flip over to Galatians chapter 3, we're going to read a few verses this morning in Galatians 3 that reference not just who, but when this was going to take place. Now, the author of Galatians is this guy by the name of Paul. Uh, the book of Galatians, just to give you some context, uh, was written for particularly for Gentile Christians. Uh, that is non-Jews. And why that's significant is because these are early believers, first century believers who were not Jewish. And so they were not familiar with the laws, the customs, the traditions of Judaism. And so they were, they were having some of these false teachers essentially come in and say, yes, God loves you. But in order for God to really love you and for you to really be part of the people of God. You don't just need to follow Jesus, but you need to get circumcised. Uh, You need to follow certain um, uh, food customs and laws that they had. And so Paul is writing to combat that. And he's, he's writing to say that the Messiah who came fulfilled all of these laws, which nobody has able, been able to do at this point. And so that in the kingdom of God, it's not about what you do, but who you have trusted yourself with that allows you to be part of his kingdom. It's not about what you do. It's about trusting in Jesus. And in Jesus, there is no distinction ethically, uh, social, economically, uh, between our genders, that all of us can receive the grace and mercy of God, not because of us, but because of what the Messiah did for us. And so within that, with that in mind, here's what he says says in chapter 3, verse 27. He says, For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. In other words, those of you who have trusted Christ are part of God's family. He then says in verse 28, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. What he's saying here is that you essentially don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to follow the laws and the customs and the traditions of the Israelites and the Jews to be a people of God. Now, of course, this is a radical concept. This is a radical passage that the Messiah came not just for a particular people, group, or nation, but for everyone. Now, what he's saying is that, in other words, our current distinctions and divisions and things that make separate us and make us look different or feel different are not what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is not built around distinctions and divisions, but unity in Christ. In other words, no matter who you are, where you live, what you've been done to you or what you have done, all of us are equal in God's kingdom. Now, to be clear, Paul here is not calling for colorblindness. He's not saying our cultural differences do not matter. But what he's saying is that in spite of our differences, our value and importance to God is unchanged. So again, no matter where you live, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter what you might look like, all of us are equal before 
God. Everyone who follows Christ, in other words, as he says in verse 29, is a part of Abraham's people, part of Abraham's offspring. Now, Abraham uh, was kind of the beginning of the Israelite people that God chose Abraham and told him, uh, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so even though you might not be uh, literally from Abraham, you might not be an Israelite, all of us who are in Christ are now part of Abraham's family or God's offspring. Now, why is this the case? Because the Messiah, again, is a blessing for all nations. And so with that in mind, no matter who you are, you can receive this blessing that the Messiah has given us. He says this in chapter 4, verse 1. Here's how this plays out. Um, he said, well, before that, I <laughs> probably should make a point here. Uh, before that, the blessing for all nations, here's what we need to know. Uh, that God's redemption is for all people. What Paul's essentially saying here is that God's redemption is not for a specific people group. It's not for a specific type of person living in a particular place in human history or a particular place geographically, but they are, it is for all people, which because of this, it should not surprise us uh, how inclusive the Christianity is. Now, I think this kind of goes against what we kind of mod- modern in modern times like to think about religion, particularly uh, in the West when Christianity is, can be marginalized or made fun of, the irony, of course, is that there is no more inclusive religion or thought in the world that no matter who you are, where you live, what you look like, how much money you have, that you are equal with everybody else and that God loves you just as much as he loves anyone else. It does not get any more inclusive than that, which means it should not surprise us then that Christianity is the only religion and major world religion in the world where the epicenter or the locus of the religion is not where it's started. In other words, Islam is still predominantly Middle Eastern. Uh, Hinduism is predominantly in India. Buddhism is predominantly in China. And you could go on and on. What we see throughout the history of Christianity is that it starts, if if you will, quote unquote, uh, in the Middle East. And then the center of it goes to Europe. It has gone to North America. Now it is in South America. And they project within 20 to 30 years, the, the kind of the consensus or the most amount of people who are believers is going to shift to Africa, which again should not surprise us if God actually loves all people, that all people in the world can experience his love and his grace, that God's redemption is for all people. It is not exclusive. It's kind of the opposite of what happened to me a couple of years ago. If you call New City Church home, you know I'm a massive Duke fan, massive college basketball fan. As a side note, I'm so unexcited about this college basketball season. It's boring. There's no fans. It's not fun. But anyway, I'm I'm a big Duke fan. And so one of my dreams in life is to one day go to a Carolina Duke game, particularly in Cameron Indoor where Duke plays, but I'm not picky, but I'll go anywhere. I don't really care. Uh, This almost happened for me about six years ago. I had bought tickets to the ACC championship game, the ACC tournament that was uh, playing in Greensboro. Uh, And Duke and Carolina were both in the semifinals. Carolina played the first game and they won. Duke played the, the later game and they lost. And I was so disappointed because I was going to go to a Carolina Duke game and it was going to be awesome. And I was so disappointed. Uh, So that didn't happen. But then about two or three years ago, uh, one of Christina and I's good friends was a a grad student at Chapel Hill. Now, to give you some more context of this, uh, it was about five years ago that I finally converted Christina, my wife, to actually like Duke. And so she's only liked them for a handful of years, right? So she doesn't understand how big a dream this is for me to go to a Duke game. Uh, And so a couple years ago, uh, one of her good friends was a grad student at UNC, and she begins to tell us how she had gotten two tickets to the Carolina Duke game in Chapel Hill 
hill. The seats were, it was like the very top of the, of, the, of the building, but I'm like, I don't care. I'm going to a game, right? And so she's saying she's got these tickets and how, how excited it is. And then she proceeds to say this, Christina, I would love for you to go to the game with me. <laughs> to which I'm thinking, because I thought she was going to give it to both of us, right? And so I'm thinking, I am so Happy for Christina. That's just all I could think about. It was how happy I was that she got to go to this game, and I didn't, right? I was so happy for her. It was just the best thing ever, and it was awesome, right? But this, again, is not what Christianity is. It's not for certain people who get in or certain people that have a ticket or certain people who look or dress or behave a certain way. God's redemption is for all people. This is what it's talking about in Genesis, the good news that somehow an offspring of a woman is going to come and redeem us and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now, the question is, how does this happen? Or in other words, uh, following up with what Paul says in uh, chapter 3, verse 29, how we are going to be heirs, a part of Abraham's offspring, the question then becomes, how do we uh, obtain this inheritance? How do we get this inheritance, right? Because again, the false teachers in Galatia were saying you must do certain things in order to be part of the people of God. And so with that, here's how Paul responds. Again, chapter four, verse one, how do we get this inheritance? He says this, now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under the guardians and trustees until the time set by the father. Now, to help us understand what's happening here, children in the ancient world were not viewed the same way as they are today. Um, In the ancient world, uh, they had no legal status. And in fact, uh, they were viewed no differently than slaves. And so even though one day uh, the inheritance, either at an appointed time that was set by the father or by the father's death, the children would would obtain the inheritance if their family had anything to pass down. Until that happened legally, especially as kids, they were no different than a slave. And so what he's saying here is that in the same way, there was a time set for creation to receive this inheritance. Although God loves all people and desires to redeem all people, there was a specific time set forth when the Messiah would come to make this happen. Just like a child had to wait for his inheritance, uh, the world has to wait for our inheritance in Christ. And so he says this in verse 3. He says, in the same way, we also... When we were children, we're in slavery under the elements of the world. Now, we here being both Jews and Gentiles, everybody was enslaved, but in different ways. And so for the Israelites, it was with the Mosaic, the Old Testament law that they could not fulfill, that they could not live up to, right? And for the Gentiles, for the non-Jews, it was for their pagan practices and beliefs and religions as they followed other false gods. In both cases, both Jews and Gentiles, we all ultimately need redemption that we cannot obtain on our own. Like children are waiting for an inheritance to come. The world was awaiting for this Messiah to come and do for us what no human has been able to do for ourselves, which means this should not surprise us that we see often through scripture that God's promises often include waiting. Right? God's promises often include waiting, and it was true for the Messiah to come, and it's often true for many things in our life. If you were here a few weeks ago, as we've been going through the book of Exodus, we talked about how sometimes oh, we say that God moves slowly. Right? We say that God moves slowly, but we have to ask when we say something like that, when we say God moves slowly, the question has to be, according to who? 
right? Just because God moves slower than how we would want him to move, that doesn't mean he actually moves slowly if he's actually moving at the appropriate pace. And so just like we had to wait for the Messiah, there are many things in our life that we have to wait for. And in fact, this year has been a collective sense of waiting for the entire world, uh, for COVID and all the implications of that and the financial implications and the racial injustices that we have seen. A lot. There's been a lot of hardship and tension and problems that we have had to wait on the Lord for. And so I just want to say, if you're in that season right now where you are praying and you are pursuing and you are wanting something to happen just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean God loves you less. And it certainly doesn't mean that God isn't faithful because again, God's promises often include waiting, which includes the most biggest promise in the world, the Messiah to come. And so we had to wait until this chapter four, verse four, then it says this, when the time came to completion, or some translations say at the right time, uh, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. In other words, at the right time or at the completed time, God came, born of a woman. Does this sound familiar, right? He's, he's referencing what's happening in Genesis, that God was going to become in a human flesh. And so the question then becomes, when Jesus comes, we have to ask, is he the one, right? We've seen failure after failure. We've seen no one able to fully live up to the law is Jesus, the Messiah. Is he the one that's going to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves? And so this is what he says, that the Messiah, Jesus, was born from a woman, and he was born under the law. In other words, Jesus was Jewish, right? He was an Israelite, and he followed all of the laws to perfection in order to redeem us, right? In order for, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. In other words, he fulfilled the law on our behalf. And not only that, this is not some random incidence. This is not God being like, well, I guess it's time. Nobody has been able to, to live up to my standards and they all need help. So let's see Jesus. Let's send this Messiah now. Seems like a good time. That's not what we see throughout scripture, right? Galatians says at the completed, at the time of completion or Romans chapter five, verse six, it'll be on the screen. Uh, Paul in Romans says this, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Again, not some random time, not some, oh, I guess it's time to send the Messiah because they need it, but pre-planned from the beginning of creation at the right time while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly, which means when it comes to us celebrating this Advent season and the Messiah coming, we need to remember that what we think is spontaneous, God timed um, all along. What we think is spontaneous or we sometimes think of, well, I guess now we should send Jesus was planned and was timed from the beginning, right? This reminds me of, I feel like I share this story um, every Christmas season because I think it's just really funny. Uh, when, my, when I was young, my, my brothers and I were young. Uh, my mom is someone who likes to be a little bit more spontaneous. And my dad was somebody who was very planned and thoughtful um, and, and, and like thinks things in a future like spontaneity is not anything that has to do with, with my dad. Uh, and it's because my dad knows that my mom doesn't always operate that and likes to just kind of like live life sometimes. Um, he, one day, as he was coming home from wor work, he called my mom and he said, hey, I've got a babysitter tonight and we're just going to go have a, have a spontaneous date night, right? She didn't know it was coming up. It was spontaneous. It was going to be fun. I'm sure they had a great time doing whatever uh, married people did when I was a kid. I wasn't sure what that entailed, but they had a spontaneous date night, right? Well, a couple of days later, 
Uh, my dad had a uh, one of those uh, at-a-glance calendars. So this is before you know you had your iPhones and electronic calendars, and was one of those 24-hour. You know, you got your whole day, and you can schedule your week. And so he lived by this thing. And so he went to work one morning, and he realized he had left his calendar at home. So he called my mom, and he asked her to tell him all the stuff he had planned for the day, uh, so that he could make sure he got everything done that he wanted to get done. Uh, she hangs up the phone, and she realizes that a couple of days before she's looking at his calendar when they went on a spontaneous date, on his calendar it said, spontaneous date night with Debbie, <laughs> right? Now here's the thing, he, it was not spontaneous for him. He planned it because that's who he was. And as my mom saw that, she didn't, she didn't, she didn't feel like she was slighted. She didn't feel like uh, he cared for her any less. In fact, I think it was encouraging to her that he was not someone that was like, I'm just going to do it, right? He had to plan it spontaneously. And I share that story because this is what happens when the Messiah is coming, Right, what we might think is spontaneous and kind of haphazard, and it's like, well, now's the time for the Messiah to come. What we see when you read scripture is that from the very beginning, God says, I love my creation and I love my people, and I'm going to make a way for them at the right time. And that's what he does, and it's why we celebrate so much during the Advent season. And so again, he says this in chapter in verse four and five of Galatians. Again, he says, When the time came to completion, so not spontaneous, not random. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. That we might be adopted as sons and daughters and children of God. Now, again, the context here helps us understand and I think brings this passage uh, to light better than if we don't understand what's going on. You see, adoption in the ancient Roman world was different than how we view adoption today, right? Today, typically, you have a child who's in need. You have a family that adopts a child, typically when they're young, as a part of the family. That's not what adoption and how adoption worked in the Roman ancient world world. How adoption worked for them was different. Basically, what would happen is if you were aging, you and your, and your wife, you were getting older, and you had no children or legitimate children to pass on your inheritance to, what you would do is you would adopt to typically a grown man to take over the, your inheritance and your possessions when you passed away. And so you would designate someone to receive the wealth that they don't deserve, right? They're not even part of your family, but you need someone to look over your estate and your affairs after you pass away. And so you would adopt somebody to take over for you when you die. And so what we see happening here is that this is what God does for us. God adopts us, not just to give us a family, but again, in the language that Paul is using in Galatians 3 and 4, to give us an inheritance that we do not deserve. He said, I'm going to make you a part of my family so that you can receive the grace and the mercy and the love of God, that one day you will be invited into my kingdom, where there's no more pain or suffering or death or lying or cheating. And it's not because you earned it. It's because I adopted you to give you an inheritance that you would not otherwise have earned or deserved on your own. In other words, what we see happening here is not simply that God chose to redeem all people, but that God chose to redeem you. That redemption is not just for everybody, it's also for you. It's, it's God chose to redeem you, which I think is a very beautiful picture because I think often what we typically think about God's love, we think about it in a generic sense, right? We think God loves everybody and he loves his creation and he loves his people. But what we don't often do is think about how God loves 
us. And in fact, it's typically hard for us, right? It's hard for us because we know all of our issues. We know how, how many times we've blown it. We know our thought life. Or we know our selfish desires. We think that God certainly doesn't love us as much as he loves other people. But that's not what we see happening throughout Scripture. That God chose to redeem you, not because you earned it, but because he actually loves you and cares for you. Which means that God's love is general and personal. God's love is general and personal. It's not just for everybody. It's also for you. You can think of it this way. You can think of it like this, that God's love is kind of like a subtweet, okay? Now, let me explain, because you're like, that's not like, that doesn't sound very nice. I, it doesn't, but it, if it helps you remember it, I'm all good, okay? So a subtweet, and you can do this on other social media platforms, but it's like when you typically passively, aggressively post something that's directed at a particular person or a group of people, but you don't actually call them out, right? And so everybody can see the message, but it's really directed to a particular person. So for example, um, like last year, last couple of years, Papa John's has been struggling. They've had some political issues and all that sort of thing. And so their sales are not as good as they used to be. And so during this time, DiGiorno's, which is the frozen pizza that that you buy from the grocery store and bring home for yourself, tweeted, better sales, better pizza. Now, that's funny if you get it, right? Because Papa John's slogan for the longest time was better ingredients, better pizza, right? And so they said better sales, better pizza. They were very clearly talking about Papa John's without actually saying Papa John's, all right? So when we say that God's love is general and personal, it's kind of like a subtree, but in a good way, right? It's for everybody, but it's also for you. It is also for you. And so the question then becomes, well, how does he accomplish this? So yes, it's good news that Christ came, but it can't just be the fact that God came. He had to do something that we couldn't do for ourselves. And so how did he accomplish the feat of allowing us to experience God's mercy and grace and allowing us to take part in the inheritance that is coming to Jesus that we all, those of us who know and follow him, get to experience as well? How did he do this? Here is how in Ephesians chapter 1, it'll be on the screen. The last few verses we'll read this morning, it says this. Paul writes this. He says, in him, talking about Jesus, our Messiah, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time, for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In other words, what we see happening here with the Messiah coming, it's not just that he came, but it's also why he came and when he came. In other words, we see God's love displayed and why and when he came. God's love is displayed in both why and when he came. I think in the Christmas season, and we think about the Messiah coming, we get so caught up in why he came, right? To live the perfect life that we could not live, to stand in the place of Israel on our behalf, so that anyone in the midst of our falling short and our screwing up and our going our own way in the midst of our doubts and our questions and our uncertainties of life and everything that is happening to us, that we can receive the grace and mercy of God. 
That's why he came. But it's significant not just that he came, but also when, right? When we understand that God planned this, that he prepared this, that it was a particular moment in time for this to happen, it gives more significance to this Christmas season. It's not some random, this kind of happened and we're just glad that it happened, but it was a particular moment in time that God planned to put his love on display for the entire world. It's kind of like, and I was having a hard time thinking a of a specific example, but I think you'll catch it with me. It's like when you're watching a movie, right? Or reading a book or something like that. And you have a character who's kind of weird and kind of dorky, and he's like got this weird skill or he's like weird obsession with something, right? And it's like, what? Nobody even cares. Like, why do you do this? And it's weird, right? And then you get to the point in the movie where there's a problem, right? And no one can seem to be able to fix the problem except for this weird kid that's on the side, right? And he's really good at this particular thing that nobody else is good at and nobody else likes. And so the movie comes to this like climactic scene where it's like, you know, he's about to step in to like save the day. And he knows he's about to step in to save the day. And it's just like awesome, right? That's kind of like what's happening here. Again, it's like a subtweet. It doesn't do justice to everything that's going on, but God God planned and prepared this at a specific moment in time to reveal to us his love for you and for me. You see, this is the good news of the gospel. This is the proto-evangelium fulfilled in the coming Messiah, that Christ came into a world that was broken, that was going their own way, just like you and I, just like Adam and Eve choose to go our own way. And in spite of all of that, God doesn't come begrudgingly. He doesn't come because he has to. He has to. He doesn't come because he needs to. He comes because he wants to. Not because he needs something from you or he wants something from you, but simply so you, for you to experience the grace and mercy that he awful, offers, right? The gospel is good news because anybody, no matter where you live, no matter uh, how you have grown up, male or female, Jew or Greek, a socioeconomic status, the ethnicity of your skin and your background, all of us can receive the grace and mercy of God, that we see God's love displayed, not just in why he came, but when he came. And so in the midst of a difficult year, as we're struggling to get through the rest of this year, we can still celebrate, uh, we can still sing, we can still be encouraged in the midst of the difficulties of life, that God loves us, his love is not random, his love is not, uh, is not, uh, is not specific to just a certain group of people, but it's to anyone who will receive what the Messiah did for us on the cross in his death and burial and resurrection. God's love is displayed. Not just in why, but also in when he came. And we understand the story of scripture, that it's pointing to Jesus in a specific time and a specific place. I think it shows us that God loves us even more than we originally thought. Let's pray.